0: You are now listening to the August 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 apostles, sermon, and equipping the saint. First, let's begin with 12 apostles.
1: Hello, this is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Do you know of someone around you who is very temperamental, hot-blooded, easy to anger, and frowning all the time? This person is readily provoked to say, Don't start with me or you'll get burned. This person is like a ticking time bomb that is about to go off. Well, if you did think of someone... James was like that person. Jesus gave a nickname, Bonerges, to James. It means, son of thunder, and was used to refer to somebody with a fiery temperament. James was like that. There is one incident recorded in the Bible that explicitly demonstrated how his temper could flare up. One day, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem they were about to go through the land of samaria during that time many jewish people despised samaria so to avoid meeting the people there they went around samaria instead of going through it yet jesus always had compassion for the samaritans in his heart that is why he chose to go through samaria however When the people of Samaria learned that Jesus entered their land with the intent to go to Jerusalem, they refused passage for Jesus to transit through their land. Of course, they had their reasons for doing this to Jesus and the disciples. This is because the Samaritans worshipped on the Gerizim Mountains and the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. When Jesus said he was on his way to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, they refused him because they did not want to acquiesce the worshipping in a different place other than the Gerizim Mountains. So Jesus and his disciples were turned away. When they refused passage by the Samaritans, James, the son of thunder, obviously became very upset and said the following as stated in Luke chapter 9 verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What James was calling for was something quite dreadful. He was suggesting that they have all Samaritans be annihilated by fire, striking down from heaven. Perhaps James was imagining the incident involving the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. That incident had the prophet Elijah confronting King Ahaziah. Elijah delivered God's messages to Ahaziah, and this king hated Elijah for that. He sent 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. Then the fire came down from heaven and killed all the soldiers. It seems like James thought of this incident and suggested to Jesus to have the same thing happen to these Samaritans that refused safe passage to them. Clearly, James was quick-tempered and was full of raging fire. Nonetheless, James was eventually transformed when he received the fire of the Holy Spirit. He was transformed from a person who jumped to suggesting to kill people when enraged into a person who saved people through the gospel. Beloved listeners, we all have our own weaknesses. The news of hope is that the Holy Spirit transforms our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit can do wonderful things and bring about transformation in our lives. Yet there are times when we misunderstand the work of the Holy Spirit. Often, people associate paranormal things to the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, an evangelist once said, mistakenly, he could shoot fireballs through his hands with the power of the Holy Spirit. Another evangelist insisted with the power of the Holy Spirit, he could change the color of a tooth into a golden color. But these are false claims. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not being in a trance or showing extraordinary things. It shows through my behaviors and actions to my wife when I am home. That is carrying out love, one of the fruits of the Spirit. I completely agree with him. Some people think the Holy Spirit is like an energy drink that could give us extra power when we need it. But the Holy Spirit is not that. The Holy Spirit is a person with his own personality and moves among us to intercede and guide us. We will bear the fruit of the Spirit when we have a close relationship with him and accept his influence. The following song describes the power of the Holy Spirit. Loving others instead of hating by the power of the Holy Spirit, feeling joy instead of feeling sad. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Finding peace instead of having dispute by the power of the Holy Spirit. Having patience instead of being impatient by the power of the Holy Spirit. Having kindness instead of being stingy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Finding goodness instead of being selfish by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being faithful instead of giving up by the power of the Holy Spirit, having gentleness instead of getting angry, by the power of the Holy Spirit, finding peace instead of giving in to anger, by the power of the Holy Spirit, having self-control instead of losing self-control, by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the fruit of the Spirit. We all have weaknesses with things that worry us, our children have their weaknesses. Husbands and wives have their weaknesses. Our parents have their weaknesses. That is why we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to lay down our weaknesses in front of the Holy Spirit, and then we will experience the healing when He touches us and embraces us. We are now about ready to conclude today's message. Here is a passage from Acts chapter 12, verses one and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. According to the historian Eusebius, James brought the gospel to Spain. That was thought to be the end of the world at the time, and he witnessed Jesus even to his dying moment at the hands of Herod. At the scene set up to execute him, James witnessed to the masses gathered there of the resurrected Jesus. He said boldly, Resurrected Jesus is with me, and I will live again, just like the resurrected Jesus, even if I die. His statement was very moving in that, in particular, touched the heart of one official that was a believer of Christ. He believed, but in private, because he feared others. Encouraged by James's testimony, this official suddenly came forward and confessed his belief in Jesus to everyone there. He said, I am actually also a Christian. That official had been hiding his faith, and the fact that, he was a Christian himself. But when he saw how James had so courageously witnessed of the living Jesus to the hostile crowd that was about to hand him over to an executioner, he became emboldened. And it has been told that both James and this official were executed by beheading right there. The passionate apostle James served faithfully As a disciple of Jesus Christ, by taking the cup of suffering that was given to him. Beloved listeners, Jesus calls us to the place of serving, and the Holy Spirit transforms our weaknesses. We should seek to become the servers instead of the served, just as the weakness of James was transformed by the Holy Spirit. I hope we will walk and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit as transformed people. By doing so, I pray that we will be able to bear the fruit of the Spirit this coming week. This concludes today's episode of the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is God's Word to You in the Storm. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
2: You have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with. Let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 6. So Jesus' disciples get back from the short-term mission trip, and they debrief, much like we did last week. And then Jesus includes them. And a miracle of feeding over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And we know, based on another account of this story from one one of Jesus' other disciples, John, that right after Jesus fed all these people, they were ready to crown Jesus king. Mark it down. People love free food. But Jesus knew it was not God the Father's plan for him to be crowned king in that way at that time. So he wanted to get the disciples away from that crowd as fast as possible. That's where we pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. I'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but follow along with me. So here is what happens next. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And they were utterly astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Oh, there's so much here and so much that relates to the needs in our lives, the challenges we walk through. So I'm going to use this imagery of a storm on the sea with wind and waves to represent the challenges that you might be walking through right now. And I just want you to hear straight from God what he is saying to you in the middle of any, every storm in your life. So... God's word to you in the storm. Or if you're not walking through storms right now, maybe to write these things down and hide them in your heart so you can have them ready to pull out for whenever the next storm comes. So here's what God is saying in His Word. In the middle of the storm, first and foremost, Jesus calls you into storms. Jesus calls you into storms. So did you notice from the very beginning of this passage, Jesus calls you into storms. Did you notice from the very beginning that Jesus is the one who made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side? In other words, Jesus sent his disciples into what would turn into a storm. So that probably happened around 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night once it had gotten dark and people had eaten. Then later in verse 48, Mark tells us that Jesus came out to them on the sea about the fourth watch of the night. So that's anywhere between 3, 4, 5, maybe 6 o'clock in the morning. So the picture is these disciples were on this boat for at least six hours if not 9, 10, 11 hours, by themselves, making headway painfully with the wind against them. Matthew, in his account of this story, says they were being beaten by the waves, all because they had done what Jesus told them to do. Because they obeyed Jesus. Jesus led them into a storm. Now, I want to pause and just let's be clear. There are definitely times in our lives when we face challenges, storms, because we disobey Jesus. There are always consequences to sin and disobedience in our lives. Storms follow sin. But at the same time, there are also times when we face storms not because of our disobedience to Jesus, but actually because of our obedience to him. And we should not be surprised by this. This is all over the Bible. We just finished reading Job in our church's Bible reading plan who experienced suffering because of his obedience to God, his blamelessness before God, his fear of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in a fiery furnace because they obeyed and worshiped God. Daniel found himself in a den of lions because he was seeking God. Read about prophet after prophet in the Old Testament. You don't come away with the impression that the pathway to the smooth, trouble-free life is obedience to God and his word. Actually, the opposite. Then when you turn the pages into the New Testament, you see these disciples, we were talking about this re- recently, they were all persecuted. You realize that they all suffered most of them died as a result of following Jesus. Paul knew this. We just finished reading First and Second Corinthians. Today we're starting Philippians, where Paul is writing from prison because he knew, he wrote it out specifically in his second letter to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The picture in the New Testament is clear, and of course we're not surprised because this is Jesus who died on a cross because of his obedience to God the Father, and who said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to experience what I experienced. So no Christian should be under any illusion that following Jesus leads to a smooth, trouble-free life in this world. When you signed up to follow Jesus, you signed up for storms. Jesus sees you in the storm. Did you notice verse 48? Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, that the wind was against them. Jesus saw. Let's just meditate for a moment on the simple significance of this one word, these three letters. Jesus saw. Jesus knew exactly what was going on with these disciples. He saw where they started. He saw where they were now, and he saw where they were going in a way that they couldn't even see. He saw and knew things they did not know. Jesus always sees with a perspective that is far wider and far truer than our perspective And this is particularly true when we're walking through storms. We see the wind and the waves around us. Many times that's all we can see, which cause fear to rise up in us. Like, what's going to happen? The wind and the waves cause confusion. Why is this happening? The wind and the waves cause question. How, How do I get through this? but here's Jesus on the side of the mountain and he sees and knows it all in a way the disciples didn't see and couldn't know. In ways that you and I, when we're in the storm, can't see and don't know. Didn't we see this in the book of Job? Remember how the whole story of Job is told to us in a way that even we see what Job doesn't see. In that first chapter, before anything bad happens, we see this conversation in heaven between God and Satan, this angelic assembly surrounding God that ultimately leads to Job's storms. But at no point does Job know anything about that conversation. In the whole story, all he sees is the storm around him. That's all he knows. But even you and I, as we read the book, we have a different perspective. We know where the story starts We can even flip to the last chapter to see where it ends, which means we have a whole different perspective that helps us understand what's happening to Job. We know that God honors Job as holy. We know that Job will eventually be restored, but Job doesn't know any of that, and that's part of the point of the book. Whenever we walk through storms, we always, always, always have a limited perspective. Now, I'm not saying that anytime we suffer, we can conclude that God has had a conversation with Satan and heaven about our lives like he did about Job. But the reality is, no matter what happens in our storms, our perspective is always partial. It's limited. And part of the point of the book of Job is to remind us there's a whole nother perspective, the perspective of the God who sees and knows all. Just imagine the Broader, wider, truer, more complete perspective of Job's story. There stands Satan before God, surrounded by 10,000 angels. Satan accusing Job of false worship, saying God has to pay people to worship him. And God responds and says, You may do all these things to Job. And Satan does. Satan strikes down Job's oxen and donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and then his children. And a hush comes over heaven. As God, Satan, and 10,000 angels wait in silence to see Job's response. And Job falls on his knees in worship, looks up to heaven and says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And totally unbeknownst to Job, at that moment, 20,000 angels' arms shoot into the air, and 10,000 angel voices shout, worthy is the God of Job, as Satan goes running out of God's presence. That perspective changes the whole story but that's the point Job couldn't see that and when you and I walk through storms we never see the whole story and we won't see it completely this side of heaven but we can trust Jesus sees he sees he knows in the middle of the storm Jesus sees you he knows you and he sees and knows every other person and every single detail in ways you could never see or know just hide this away in your heart. When you struggle to see him, know that he sees you. Now, that doesn't make everything easy, which leads to this next truth from this story for you from God. Jesus prays for you amidst the storm. Jesus prays for you amidst the storm. What a picture. In verse 46, here are the disciples being tossed around in the middle of the sea. And while they're in the storm out there, Jesus is on the mountainside over here on his knees praying. Doubtless, at least in part, interceding for them and their faith amidst the storm they're facing. What a picture. Get in your mind. When we walk through storms, we find ourselves praying all the time. God, please help me in this way. Please help in that way. And we should pray like that. But at the same time, stop and realize Jesus is praying for you. You say, what do you mean? Jesus is praying for me? Well, go to Romans 8 with me. I'll put it up here on the screen. Right after the Bible talks about suffering in this world and how God is working for good, even in our suffering, the Bible says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God. And he is what? He's interceding for us. (laughs) Do you realize the wonder of this? That in the middle of your storm, all around you, Jesus is interceding for you? for all the things you need, I can think, think about, I, didn't, I don't have it up here, but what the Bible says right after this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or insert your storm? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all your needs. You need you need strength, you need hope, you need peace, you need comfort, you need courage, you need wisdom, you need faith on days when faith is hard to come by. You just need help to make it through the day with all those needs. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, interceding for everything you need. It'll change your perspective on storms in this world when you realize that the Son of God is in heaven, interceding on your behalf. Ready to give you everything you need at every moment you need it. Which leads right into this next truth. So, Jesus prays for you amidst the storm, and Jesus is our greatest need in the storm. Jesus is our greatest need in the storm. So, make the connection here. Just mention all kinds of things we need in the storm strength, hope, peace, comfort, courage, wisdom, faith, help. I could go on and on and on. But this story is specifically told in such a way that we might see our greatest need is not ultimately these things. Our greatest need is ultimately Him. Let me show it to you. Verse 48. It's so interesting. So they're making their headway painfully, the wind is against them. Jesus comes to them walking on the sea, and it says He meant to pass by them. Now, what is that about? I read that I'm like, sounds like Jesus was going for a stroll in the water, and like trying to sneak past him, almost kind of laughing at him, huh? Ha ha! I can walk; you guys are struggling. And then he's trying to sneak by, and they're like, "Oh, that's him!" And he's like, "Oh no! All right, I'll come over and help you out." Like that's kind of what—that's the picture you have in your mind, I think. I don't think that's what this is going on here. I mean, for one, Jesus Jesus could have took a variety of routes across that sea where it had been clear that they couldn't see him. So I I don't think he was trying to avoid his disciples. This is where I want you to see the beauty of God's word and the way God's word speaks really intentionally with this language. He meant to pass by them. So that language actually takes us back all the way in the Old Testament The times when God's people were in difficult days and storms. And God, in the storm, revealed himself to his people in greater ways than they had ever seen before. And the language it uses is passing by them. So watch this. Moses, he was experiencing all kinds of storms trying to lead God's people. And he said, God, I need to see you in the middle of this. I need to see you. And listen to how God responded. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So this language of passing by is the way God spoke about revealing his glory to Moses. And you look at the very next chapter. Listen to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him. And proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So see this picture of God's glory and his attributes, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He saw God in a way he had never seen him before as the Lord passed before him. That's the language. Then interestingly, so fast forward to Elijah's life. At a moment that he was so discouraged and de- depressed, he wanted to die. He did not want to go on. Let my life end. He's at the end of his rope. So overwhelmed. So heavy. And listen to how God revealed himself to Elijah. 1 Kings 19.11. God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord did what? passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Get the picture. Elijah had seen God reveal himself in fire from heaven and rain from the sky and provision of food Miraculously. And now God revealed himself to Elijah in the sound of a low whisper, in a way he had not seen, heard before. And the way the Bible talks about that is the Lord passing by. So we have this picture, this pattern in the Bible of God's people walking through storms and in the process, in the middle of the storm, getting a clearer picture of the glory and the grace and the power and the love of God in the middle of the storm as he passes by his people. So now, here in the New Testament, in the middle of the storm at sea, the Spirit of God uses this language in the Word of God to describe Jesus walking on the water and he meant he intended to pass by them. That takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Because now you realize Jesus meant, he intended, to give these disciples in the middle of the storm a greater glimpse of his glory than they had ever seen before. That's exactly what happened. Did you notice verses 51 and 52? Jesus got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and the storm stopped, and they were utterly astounded. Why? Because they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. In other words, they had just seen Jesus perform a miracle, turning five loaves of bread and two fish into a meal for over 5,000 people, but they still didn't get it. They didn't realize who Jesus was until this moment. And it's interesting in Matthew's account of this story, when Jesus gets into the boat, Matthew says, Uh, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. That's the first time in the Bible that the disciples realize and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, a title for God in the flesh. It was in the middle of the storm they came to that realization. In the middle of the storm, Jesus was revealing his glory and his grace and his power and his love in new ways, who he is, in such a way that We might realize in a deeper way who Jesus is and in this realize he is the one we most need in the middle of the storm. To realize that our greatest need in the storm is not strength or peace or hope or wisdom or courage or help or anything else. We need the one who's the source of all those things. Our greatest need is not for our circumstances to be fixed as much as we want things to work out in this way or that way. Our greatest need is the one who's sovereign over all our circumstances. We need Jesus. We need God in the flesh. What do you most need when the waves are rising around you? You need the one who speaks and causes the waves to be still. What do you most need when the wind is beating against you? You need the God who speaks and the wind stops. What do you most need in the middle of the storm? You need the God who's sovereign over the storm. Jesus is our greatest need in the storm. And here's the beauty in this story. So it leads you right in this next truth. Hear this from God to you. This God in the flesh, Jesus, is with you in the storm. He's with you. This God is with you. The one you most need is with you. So this is the sentence in the story that if we're not careful can cease to shock us, especially if we've heard the story, read it many times. But verse 48 says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. About the fourth watch of the night in the darkest part of the night, when their energy was at its lowest, when their despair was at its deepest, Jesus showed up, And he miraculously came to them where they were. And they realized Jesus had been watching them all along. And he was not for a second going to leave them alone. Can I just say that again? And you soak it in right where you're sitting. Maybe just make it a bit more personal. In the darkest part of your night, when your energy is at its lowest. And your despair is at its deepest. Jesus will show up. And you will realize he has seen you all along. He has known you all along. And he is not about to leave you alone in that storm. Jesus is with you in the storm. Not distant from you. Right there with you. And you listen to verse 49, it gets even better. It says, when they Jesus saw Jesus walking on the water, they thought he, or actually it says it, they thought it was a ghost. So they cried out in fear, in terror. So and this is this interesting? This is not a cry of faith. This is a cry of fear. There's essentially no faith in what they were saying. Yet Jesus comes to them anyway and listen to his language immediately. He speaks to them and says, take heart. It's I. Do not be afraid. What a beautiful picture of the mercy and kindness of Jesus to come to us where we are, even in our cries of fear, and to comfort us. Isn't this encouraging? Particularly on days when our faith is waning. And maybe even... Non-existent. Instead, we're just afraid. Or we're confused. Or we're frustrated. Or burdened or worried or anxious. And the truth is, we're lacking faith. Even in that moment, Jesus comes to us and says, take heart. It's I. I'm here. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I'm with you. Even when we can't muster up that cry of faith, he's still pursuing us. And not only with us, but we can trust him. He's going to lead us through this. That's the next to the last truth. Jesus will lead you through the storm. He will lead you through the storm. Jesus gets into the boat with him and the wind ceases. And they cross over to the other side. It was a long night. It took us seconds to read this story. It was hours of, can we keep this up? How long is this going to last? Will this ever end? And finally, it ended. Now here's the deal. I obviously do not know how your story Or how the storms you're in now, or you face in the future, will unfold. And you don't know that either. But here's what I do know, and here's what you can know. For all who love and trust and worship God, you can know this. Jesus will lead you through to the end. And the end will be good. Guaranteed. Say, how can you say that? Well, it's straight from God. We know. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things. In the original language of the New Testament, all things there means all things. All things work together. For what? For good. For good For good for those who are called according to His purpose. And what's that purpose? Ah, see the God who sees and knows from the beginning God saw you way before this storm ever started, all the way back to before you were born. He foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be renewed and restored into the image that you were made to experience life in. And those He predestined He also called those whom he called. He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's where it's all headed. Glory. Glory. It's where it's all going. So brother or sister in Christ, in the middle of the storm, take heart. There's a lot we don't know in the storm, but we do know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. For all who keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, he will lead you through the storm. He will lead you through the storm. And not just you. That's the last truth. Pardon me, I want to stop right here. Just soak this in in each of our lives, but it's not where the passage today stops. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this last truth. Not only will Jesus lead you through the storm, But Jesus is not just for you and your storms. He's for others and their storms. So our our passage doesn't end with the disciples safe on the other side. It ends with more and more people who are sick being made well. Jesus is not just for you and your storms. He's for others and their storms. So have a different perspective this week as you go out into this world. Maybe in a similar way to what I was sharing at the beginning as a pastor about to speak this word, to realize the people you're around all week long have needs in their lives. They're walking through challenges too. other students, other friends of yours on campus, at school, other coworkers, neighbors, that person waiting on you at the restaurant. These are people with needs in their lives and their families. And Jesus is for them in their storms. He's brought you across their path to be a reflection of his love for them, to point them to his love for them. So live with that perspective. In a world of need right around us, an urgent spiritual and physical need far beyond us. Don't just receive this truth in your life. Spread this truth through your life. Just be comforted by Jesus in your life. Be committed to sharing Jesus' love with others' lives. We live to spread the good news of Jesus with you in this storm.
3: just from 71%
1: of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with Covenant Eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name. Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box. The
0: following program is called Equipping the Saints.
4: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that, notice this, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The reality is we are not our own. We have been bought. We have been purchased by Christ, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Peter was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the Lord. He was a bondservant in a sense that he recognized he was owned by Christ and has been bound over to do his will and obey him. Peter recognized he was a bondservant and had completely surrendered his will. We see that in Scripture. You see, you're going to serve somebody. You're either going to serve sin and yourself or you're going to serve Christ, a good master. When we think of this term bondservant, we immediately shudder and think, no good. It's very good. Look at Romans chapter 6. We see the reality that we're either going to serve sin or we're going to serve the Lord, depending on if we have been purchased or not. You see, you will either serve the cruel taskmaster of sin or a loving Savior. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey. You know what? Whoever you obey, you're a slave. You're a slave. And he says here, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were says, you were slaves to sin. You were sold into bondage to sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed And having been freed from sin, obviously in the context of Christ, if you look earlier in the chapter, you became slaves, bond slaves, of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves or bond slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and what? Enslaved to God. That's a form of this word. Enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life then a verse we know so well, but it's based on this portion. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are now freed from sin. We were slaves to sin. We are now enslaved to God. But He's a good God. He's a righteous God, a gracious God, a God who gave Himself for us. You know, all throughout the scriptures, believers are spoken of as servants of the living God. True believers, ones who are really following the Lord, ones who are really walking with Him. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter ten. We live in a society which just, and uh, a Christian society, by the way, which just mirrors the world. It mirrors the world in regards to living the way you want to live on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to love him. And then what else? He says, and to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. To serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. We were saved to serve the Lord. He says here, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Look down at verse 20, Deuteronomy 10. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him and cling to Him. And you shall swear by His name, He is your praise, He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Then go up to chapter 11, verse 13. And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that's your entire being, by the way, that he will give you rain in your land in its season, in the late rain, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and oil, and he will give you the grass in your fields and your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware! lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Turn to Joshua chapter 24. You know, I knew all about the Lord. I knew His Word. I knew about salvation. I knew about Jesus Christ. I would have called myself a Christian, but I wasn't serving the Lord at all. I wasn't following Him at all. I was just living a life of sin. But it was very Christianized. But I was living a life of sin. And the Lord brought me to a point where He brought this passage to mind. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. No hypocritical stuff. No hypocrites doing the outside stuff. It's from the heart. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now serve the Lord, He says. Then notice what He says here. He says to the Israelites... And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Make the choice. If it's disagreeable, don't pretend to serve God. Go serve your own stuff. Choose this day. Choose this day. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were be on the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve The Lord. The Lord used that passage to convict me of a sinful life and I knew the gospel and I repented and trusted in Christ. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is Samuel's farewell address. 1 Samuel chapter 12 verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Notice he's going to talk about following the Lord and really serving the Lord together. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but what? Serve the Lord with your whole heart. It's a willingness. Lord God, I am yours, whatever you want. He says, and you must not turn aside, for then you will go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. If you've been bought with a price, you're truly saved. You're a bondservant of Christ. Serve the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, I could share myriads of verses. David, Moses, called the servant of the Lord. We see the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a bond slave of Christ Jesus. In Romans 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 4.5, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Titus 1.1, 1, 1, James himself identifies himself as a doulos, a servant, and so does Jude. And so does the Apostle John, as we see in the book of Revelation, which we've been studying. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants, bond servants. The things which must shortly take place. And he sent communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John. In first Peter chapter two, not second Peter, Peter chapter two, verse sixteen, the apostle Peter exhorts those who have been bought with a price, those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ to not use their freedom to sin, but to be slaves of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You see, if you're a true believer, God's word makes it clear. We're servants of the Lord. We've been saved to serve the Lord. Do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord? Do you see that? Being bound over to do His will, His will above everything? Peter understood his purpose was to serve the living God, bringing him glory. And we've been freed to serve a gracious and good God who gave himself for us. If God were to place your name in his word, would he describe you as a bond slave of Jesus Christ? Honestly, acknowledge that. Do you serve him? Would he describe you that way? Peter, inspired by the Spirit, says he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Choose this day whom you'll serve. So then, right off the bat, we see the heart of Peter. He is sold out to do the will of God. And notice, secondly, he now describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Back to our passage in Second Peter. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice he describes himself right away as an apostle. And what does that mean? What does the term apostle mean in Scripture? Well, the term here comes from the Greek word apostolos, and it's derived from the Greek word apostelo, which means apo, from, "stello" to send, sent one. That's what it means. And the term apostolos is used in two basic ways in Scripture. First of all, it can be used in a general sense to speak of one who is sent as a messenger. And this is where we can get confused sometimes when we see the word apostle. It means sent one. We see this in Acts 14.14, 14, 2 Corinthians 8.23. But secondly, the term is most often used to designate the offices of apostle, those specifically chosen by Jesus, specifically sent by him. Scripture reveals that Jesus commissioned the twelve in Luke 6, and I believe ultimately planned to replace the son of perdition, Judas, with Paul, one untimely born, commissioning him on the Damascus Rose Acts chapter 9. So indeed, in the beginning of this passage, he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what do we know about that? We see in Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles' And prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. So as I'm studying, I want to ask the question: Why is he identifying himself an apostle? There are sometimes when Paul does, there are sometimes when Paul doesn't. What is the need to say he has this apostolic authority? Well, obviously, I think in this situation he is exerting, inspired by the Spirit. Yes, that he is declaring these things under the authority of Jesus Christ. This letter comes by the authority of Jesus Christ through Peter, his apostle. So Peter understood he was sold over to serve Christ, and in serving him he is feeding the sheep as a bond slave, a sent one of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does this apply to us, first of all? Do you see yourself as a bond slave? Secondly, do you see this letter as authoritative, coming from Christ? Obviously, all scriptures inspired by God, but do you see it authoritative? Okay, with that in mind, let's get into our passage here. And I believe we're going to see in our little greeting portion here as we finish that we have been so wondrously allotted a precious, saving faith. And it is the same kind that the apostles have. Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter a bondservant, and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who's writing. And here's who he writes to. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, bondslave, apostle to a group, and he describes them in this manner. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. This verb translated, who have received, is in the Greek an aorist participle. Basically means it's a completed action. You could translate it this way. Peter, to the ones having received a faith. Having had received a faith. They've already received it. It's already been received. It's a done deal. Now this verb translated having had received is an interesting verb. You know, in Greek, there are a few verbs, two of them, that can be translated receive. And here, this isn't even that verb. It is more specifically a verb that speaks of obtaining by lot or being allotted. This verb, actually in a variant of it, is used in John chapter 19, 24 to speak of the soldiers who cast lots for Jesus's garments. Our passage speaks of something being allotted. Now, the point here is that as we look at this, Simon Peter, a bond servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have been allotted, it's already happened, a faith. Now, I believe we're going to see that this is saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's already happened. We don't get saved over and over and over again. We receive a faith, and it is that saving faith that we have, that we have. And it has been Allotted. Now we're going to see, this points to, I believe, the sovereignty of God and salvation. God is the one who saves. He is the one who even appoints, in a sense, as we will see, faith. Now some of you are saying, Ugh, uh-oh, we're getting into election and free will. You know that discussion can last to eternity, and it does, right? But let me make it clear. In Scripture we see that man is responsible for, To respond to the gospel when convicted by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. That's the response of man. Yet, you see, when man is dead in their trespasses and sins, is pierced by the living and abiding Word of God through the Spirit, there comes the opportunity and choice to believe or not, to obey the gospel. That's how the Lord could say, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden Your hearts. The Spirit of God through the Word of God is piercing your heart, that dead heart. You're being convicted. You hear His voice. Don't harden your hearts. But yet we see even faith in Jesus Christ is something that is allotted to us. You see, when we respond in faith to the message of the gospel, God is behind that saving faith, as we're going to see. He is the one who enabled us by the word of God and the power of the Spirit to believe. You see, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, Romans 10:17). You see, we were born again, not at some independent time. We were born again by the Spirit of God through the living and abiding word of God, which was preached to us. First Peter 1 Peter one23 to 23-25. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. We are responsible to respond in faith to the gospel message which reveals our sin and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet even in this response of faith, God is sovereign over this. And as we see in our passage, He allots, that has no effort of our own, it's an allotment he allots faith. Simon Peter, a bond servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received or have been allotted a faith. You see, faith is a work of God. It's not a work of man. Yes, we believe, we respond, and we are responsible to do so. And we are culpable if we do not.